0: Uh, Please do turn back in your Bibles to that reading we had from 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I obviously apologise that we're not getting to 1 Timothy chapter 2, um, 8 to the end of the chapter. We're not going to be covering that today. And we kind of did that this morning with our session on complementarianism from Claire. Thank you. Um, But we're looking at the first half of the chapter since that's where we've got to. Let uh, Let me pray as we come to look at that. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, the Bible. Thank you for graciously choosing to reveal yourself and your ways to us in this book so that we might know you and live lives that are pleasing to you in every way. We pray that our ministries would also be pleasing to you in our churches as we build one another up in love and spur one another on to love and good deeds. Please help us as we look at this passage of scripture now to understand what it is you would say to us um, and give us a will to obey and to follow what you say for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, it's very hard, isn't it, in the midst of uh, all these church conflicts to know what we're supposed to do at any particular moment. Often it's very easy to see what is wrong. And I guess we all have a view on what the big issue is in the Church of England today. But it's not always straightforward to know how to put things right, especially in a way that won't ride roughshod over all the pastoral relationships that we have. In a crisis of leadership in the church, and that's what we've got, we have a crisis of leadership in the church It is very simple to make things a lot worse very quickly by doing and saying things that really will not help in the end. Pastoral wisdom is at a premium, especially in situations where we may be struggling with our own inner feelings of anger, resentment, uncertainty, disappointment and bewilderment. In chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, Paul outlines some of the specific things which Timothy is supposed to bear in mind when he is dealing with false teaching that's doing the rounds in Ephesus. And from here until the end of chapter 3, that has particularly to do with how we ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That's the end of chapter 3. And of course, there are many other things that should be said about the false teaching and how Timothy is to order the teaching ministry and teaching ministers of the church in chapters four, five and six. But first of all, he deals with some issues around congregational life and governance. The pointed singular address to Timothy sort of fades away in this section of the letter Presumably because it's about congregational issues and he expects the congregations to be reading over Timothy's shoulder, so to speak. Uh, Paul himself has just prayed his own prayer in uh, chapter 1 verse 12 onwards. He thanked God for the strength that God had given him in his appointment as an apostle, despite his own past as a false teacher and as a persecutor. And now he urges Timothy to make sure that the prayer life of his congregation reflects the truth about God's overflowing grace, which saved him. <coughs> it can save all the most insolent enemies of the gospel. And we should pray on that basis. The word therefore, or then depending on what version you're using, or soon, if you're following in the Greek. Well done. Um, First of all, therefore, it says, that is therefore taking up Timothy's primary charge, again, from chapter one, verse three. He's saying, I want you to stop all that false teaching in the church of Ephesus, Timothy, and first of all, therefore, pray. So my first point today is that prayer must be our priority prayer must be our priority first one first of all then I urge that supplications prayers intercessions thanksgivings be made for all people prayer is our priority Uh, the church historian David Bebbington has a famous way of describing evangelicals like us in his seminal book evangelicalism in modern Britain you remember it The special marks of evangelical religion are, he says, conversionism, the belief that lives need to be changed. Activism, the expression of the gospel in effort. Biblicism, a particular regard to the Bible. And what may be called crucicentrism, a stress on the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And that Bebbington quadrilateral has been subject to much scholarly scrutiny, of course, and has been justly criticised on a number of fronts. But I think it is noteworthy that one of the distinctive things he highlights about us is not our prayerfulness. That's true, isn't it? When we encounter false teaching in our churches or in our denomination Our first impulse is not always to pray. It's to get active. We preach a sermon series. We write to the church times. We put something up on social media. We organise legal challenges. We get elected to synod. We meet with our bishops. We uh, get our churches to become partner churches with church society. To put down a marker and associate ourselves with the elect. (laughs) but you know what I'm saying something must be done so we think of some things and we do them our activist impulse is to do something by contrast the apostolic impulse is first and foremost to pray first of all therefore As Marshall and Towner say in their commentary on this, prayer in the church is seen as a part of the means by which the church is to combat heresy. Even when false teaching is ruining the church and perhaps sending people to hell, we don't wring our hands in frustration or throw them up in exasperation. We don't wash our hands of the whole affair or clench our fists in readiness, or rush out to raise a banner, we should gather with the church of God and put our hands together in prayer. First of all, then, I urge you to pray, says Paul. Now, lots of people ask me these days, what is church society going to do? But how few come along to our monthly online prayer meeting to seek God's face and ask him to intervene first. I know it's from a particular time and from a particular place, but 2 Chronicles 7.14 strikes me continually as applicable. God said, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Later in 2 Chronicles 20.12, Jehoshaphat prays to the Lord, for we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what we ought to do, but our eyes are on you. These things were written for our learning. Why do we not usually think of prayer as a form of fighting for the faith? Paul seems to. Everything we do should be suffused with prayer rather than trusting to our own strategies and strengths. People confronted by false teachers often want to imitate Jesus in the temple, And get out a whip and overturn some tables. But we would do well to meditate more on his intense prayerfulness. He went off to pray on a mountain by himself. First thing in the morning, while it was still dark, in a desolate place. Are are you going to say that Jesus was too pietistic? In that, And wasn't really contending for the faith, as he should have been, by just praying. Paul was the same. In Colossians, he speaks of contending with all the energy of Christ that works in him for the Colossians and for those at Laodicea. This is about straining, making an effort for something. Paul is contending for the Laodiceans and the Colossians, despite never having met the Colossians. So contending is something that can be done from a distance, presumably by prayer and by working behind the scenes. Just as Epaphras, Paul says, wrestles in prayer for the church at Colossae. In Luke 22, a similar word is used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he prayed. And Paul asks the Romans... To join with me in my struggle by praying to God for me. So, prayer is contending, it is action, just not the one that we might instinctively reach for first. We're meant to offer, he says here, uh, supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings. I don't think the point here is necessarily to draw fine distinctions about all the different types of prayer. But supplications, that's petitions, requests for God to give us something or to do something. Prayers. Prayers is the more generic word. Uh, Intercessions are probably prayers for other people. And for situations other than our own, just as we should be interceding this week for our brothers and sisters engaged in spiritual and political combat in General Synod right now. And the big debate this afternoon between two and seven, which I'll be listening to on the motorway on the way home. Thanksgivings are expressions of gratitude to God, showing our appreciation for answered prayer and recognising that he does hear And respond to us. Every kind of prayer is what he's saying. Every different kind of prayer. Talk to God in whatever tone and accent you like. Fast and pray. Pray on your own. Or with others in church. Or in an online prayer meeting every first Thursday of the month with church society. But if you truly want to reset your leadership. Make prayer your priority in the midst of struggles and scandals and schisms as luther once wrote if you intend to do any fighting fight with prayers after all there is no other way by which we might more sharply assail satan and cause him to totter than with our prayers so first of all When false teaching raises its ugly head and is dealing with, prayer should be our priority, according to the Apostle Paul. Anyway. Second, prayer is also our piety. I think that's what Paul is saying here. He writes, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, For kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is the language of everyday piety, a peaceful, quiet life, godly and dignified. That's the kind of life that we should be living as Christians in a hostile world that hates our saviour. And doesn't know his grace. Our prayer is not to be revolutionaries and social justice warriors to change the world in a swelling riot of mass action from below. The goal, says Paul, is a quiet and obedient life. We're not praying to be kings or to overturn kings. But for kings to do their work so that we can do ours, being godly and telling people the reason for the hope that we have. Now, possibly the false teachers in the C of E, the Church of Ephesus, were trying to be revolutionaries in society. Were they the type that wanted to upset the apple cart and be culture warriors and so make an impact for Christ that way? If so, the fact that Paul says we should actually be praying for everyone, even the authorities over us, so that we can live quiet and godly lives. Well, that would be a counter to the more socially progressive style of revolutionary fervour, wouldn't it? Maybe there's something in that. Our purpose is not to start a revolt against the Romans, but to live a tranquil and quiet existence as Christians, which stands out for its obedience to authority, its dignified godliness and its missional presence. Now, is this terribly bourgeois, even selfish? as some people think no I don't think so it's it's about not bringing the gospel into disrepute Um, not bringing the gospel into repute which is an emphasis in this letter in 1 Timothy 3 7 the minister is to be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil the way that younger Christian widows behave is also to be such that they give the adversary no occasion for slander in chapter 5 verse 14. And then in chapter 6 verse 1, bond servants are also to honour their masters so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. This would seem to indicate to me anyway that there was a socially disruptive and disrespectful element to the false teaching in Ephesus, which Paul wants Timothy to correct in the prayer life of the community. And as a leader, he was not to be that kind of revolutionary. And I think there's a similar emphasis in Titus chapter 2 and Titus 3 as well. In fact, back in the very first letter that we have from him, 1 Thessalonians, Paul also tells that newly planted church to live quietly and to mind your own affairs for the sake of the church's good reputation with outsiders, 1 Thess 4. This sort of settled piety expressing itself in a well-ordered life was not something he recommended only later in his ministry, let alone being indicative of a non-Pauline authorship of the pastorals. No, it was Paul's consistent aim for the Christian communities that he was involved with as an apostle. And if you think maybe I'm just having a go at trendy lefty priests, well, let me also add that I don't think Paul is here advocating a top-down method of societal change through evangelism of the upper crust. We pray for kings and all in authority, not here so that the elite all become Christians and we can take over like Constantine the Great did and make society Christian from the top downwards. Now, it seems he's saying our goal in praying for kings and all in authority is that we might live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, that we might be protected from harm, by a well-functioning judiciary and political system and not subject to arbitrary impositions which might make our lives and our everyday evangelism more difficult. The sort of thing we saw in the first day from Acts chapter 18 that happened in Corinth when Paul and Timothy were there. Uh, My favourite Catholic commentators, Quinn and Wacker again, say this, Rulers are to understand that the public prayers of Christians for the officers of the state are not part of a programme that aims at taking over political leadership by bringing about the conversion of secular leaders to faith in Christ and the Christian way of life. Failing that, they are not implicitly threatening revolt, sedition and treason against those who do not share their beliefs." Their well-being as Christians does not depend on Christian rulers. That's a good word for our day and age, when Christianity is now a minority religion again in England. That should not affect the way that we pray and the way that we live. We should always have been aiming to live peaceful and godly lives, In our villages, towns, and cities. That was and is the way to win people for Christ. That is the lifestyle which pleases God and attracts people to Him. So, prayer is our priority and prayer is our piety. Finally, prayer for all is our strategy. Prayer for all is our strategy. Uh, Just look at all the occurrences of the word all in this passage. It's very hard to ignore, really, isn't it? It comes every every verse or so. It's obviously significant for Paul. Pray for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Well, that's easy enough. Our prayers should be universal in their reach and scope. Don't miss anybody out. And although the word all isn't there at the end of the passage, it's clearly implied in Paul's appointment as a teacher of the Gentiles. He wasn't just about bringing salvation to his own people, the Jews. He was after the Gentiles. He preached to all. And that is our strategy. You're not actually going to be effective as a minister if you only evangelise and never correct false teaching, we shouldn't begrudge that and shy away from it. But Paul also doesn't want us to miss that our prayers should not be restricted to just us, or to just an in-group, or to just people like us. A ministry that counters false teaching must be a promiscuously evangelistic ministry. Just as we don't make a false dichotomy between being pastoral and being a teacher, so I don't think we should have a hard distinction between a ministry that is good at countering false teaching and one that is evangelistically outward-looking. No, evangelism to all is part of countering false teaching, Paul says. Just as in 2 Timothy Paul says that when people gather around them, a number of teachers to teach them what their itching ears want to hear, he says straight away, Timothy, do the work of an evangelist in that context and always be looking to bring in new people. Prayer for all must be at least a part of our strategy for countering false teaching. And it is Prayer for the salvation of all, not just a quiet life here, I think. He doesn't particularly say pray for kings and authorities to be converted, but that they can do their jobs properly so we can live dignified Christian lives. But here in verses 3 to 7, he does seem to widen it out to the idea of salvation. He anchors the call to pray for all to the saving plan of God. This is good. And is pleasing to God, our Saviour, in the sight of God, our Saviour, who desires all people to be saved. Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. What's going on here? Well, in verse 8, Paul says, In every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarrelling. So we have to tread very carefully here and not end up quarrelling about the theology surrounding that word all in these verses because it has caused significant disputes and disagreements in the history of theology. James Arminius, for example, said that the reformed doctrine of predestination is in open hostility to the ministry of the gospel because it hinders public prayers from being offered to God in a becoming and suitable manner that is with faith and in confidence that they will be profitable to all the hearers of the word. Predestination prevents proper prayer for all people, says Arminius, when there are many among them whom God is not only unwilling to save, but by whom in his absolute, eternal, immutable will, it is his will and pleasure to damn, according to the Reformed doctrine. John Calvin, on the other hand, <laughs> speaks of the childish folly of those who represent this passage to be opposed to predestination. So there are huge debates about how to understand all in these verses. And I have views. I've laid out a range of options and opinions about this in my Latimer book on limited atonement, and also in my Reformation commentary on scripture volume on the pastoral epistles. There's everything in there, from Arminius to Calvin and, you know, several in between, including the ever-popular middle way of the French theologian Amiro, with his Gallic version of hypothetical universalism. Of course, this is how systematic theology arises in the first place. We come across something in one part of scripture, which seems to be at odds with another part of scripture. So uh, here we have God desires all people to be saved and Christ was a ransom for all. But elsewhere, we've got God predestined some and not others. And Christ died for his people, his sheep, his friends, his bride, his church, those given to him by the father. So which is it to be? The Anglican way is to treat scripture as a coherent whole, originating in a consistent divine mind, because it is ultimately the unerring word of the unerring God. So as Article 20 of the 39 article says, we do not expound one part of scripture that it be repugnant to another, we don't say one part of the Bible's contradictory to another. It can't be. If there seem to be contradictions, it's because we haven't understood it correctly. We have not taken sufficient account of the differing contexts of these two seemingly irreconcilable utterances of God. The fault is with us. And we must prayerfully apply ourselves to find harmony in the God-breathed word without having recourse to foolish human solutions which say, ah, well, scriptures are just a jumbled mess and it disagrees with itself. That is not how Jesus read the Bible. And it's not proper Anglican hermeneutics. So which is it to be then? Romans 9 and Ephesians 1? Are they to be sidelined when they speak of predestination of the elect? Perhaps God only predestined those that he knew would have faith anyway. And we can get out of the problem in that way, in the direction of Arminius. Or do we slightly fudge 1 Timothy 2 and just focus on the unconditional predestination of the elect and the deserved damnation of the reprobate for their many sins? Or is there actually a way to hold those together? Well, I don't think we need to manufacture some artificial solution here. The answer is to look more carefully at the context and the flow of Paul's thought in each place. Here in 1 Timothy, he's not talking about predestination or accidentally contradicting the doctrine that he's spoken elsewhere, which actually owes its origins to the Old Testament, and to the Lord Jesus himself. The context here is specific. It's about prayers and preaching, not predestination per se. So, uh, William Mounts, in his word commentary, says that the opponents in the Church of Ephesus are teaching exclusivism, limiting salvation to only a select few. The heretics in Ephesus are Jewish legalists of a sort who naturally exclude certain people because that's what their beloved genealogies in places like Genesis tend to do. And Gordon Fee, in his commentary, says, they are promoting an elitist or exclusivist mentality among their followers. And this paragraph narrows, sort of attacks that narrowness. And again, Marshall and Howard say similarly that it is plausible that the false teachers who stressed Jewish myths and genealogies and apparently also the law were not enthusiastic for the Gentile mission. So the point is, salvation is not just for the Jews or for our cosy little club either. It's for the whole world because whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So pray for the whole world, for everyone, not just our particular in-group. Pray without discrimination to the God who doesn't discriminate. However, that doesn't mean that God doesn't reprobate some. Not all are elect. Not all will be saved But that's not the thing at issue here in Timothy's Ephesus. The issue there is that false teachers thought salvation was only for certain types. That Jesus only redeemed certain kinds of people. But he didn't. He came to redeem all kinds of sinners. And if we look at it carefully, actually the word all does not always mean absolutely everybody in the Bible. In the Bible itself. In Genesis, it says God determined to destroy all flesh. Of course, the context shows us that that doesn't include Noah, his extended family and quite a lot of animals. Um, In Luke chapter 2, verse 1, all the world was to be registered. But that doesn't envision the entire population of the planet taking part in a Roman census since there was quite a lot of the world that wasn't part of the Roman Empire. Um, Matthew chapter 3, all Judea went out to Jesus, uh, to to John the Baptist and was baptised but that doesn't really mean that every single man, woman and child in Judea without exception went out and was baptised by John. Especially since Luke chapter 7 actually tells us that the Pharisees and the lawyers were not baptised by John. So is Luke and Matthew contradictory? No. No, Matthew doesn't mean everybody in the, single, in, in the entire world when he says the word all. Act 2 says I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. But that doesn't mean everybody in the world was given the Holy Spirit at the first Pentecost, does it? So, all cannot simply be assumed to mean all without exception in places like 1 Timothy 2, either. That's what I reckon. Oh, thank you. I'm glad that Siri agrees with me. You are in college. That's excellent. <laughs> Splendid. Thank you for that. OK, so the point is, context must always be taken into account to establish the implied sphere of reference. And of course, we do that kind of thing in English all the time as well, don't we? Um, so, you know, I arrive in a session of the FWSF conference, FWS conference and I ask, is everybody here? Are all present? And I do not mean, is every single person in the universe present to hear my talk? I mean, that'd be a great thing, wouldn't it, obviously? But that's not what I mean. And you know and understand what I'm implying when I say, are all present. And that's why I think Calvin is right to say that this passage is not contradictory to predestination. For the apostle simply means, he says, that there is no people and no rank in the world that is excluded from salvation, because God wishes that the gospel should be proclaimed to all without exception. Now, the preaching of the gospel gives life, and hence he justly concludes that God invites all equally to partake salvation. The present discourse, he says, relates to classes of men, sorry, classes of men, and not to individual persons. His sole object is to include in his number princes and foreign nations. So Paul is countering the exclusivism of the false teachers here. He's not countering his own teaching in Romans 9 and elsewhere. So when we think about application, the Synod of Dort got this right. It said, The promise of the gospel is that whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish but have eternal life. And this promise ought to be declared and published promiscuously and without distinction to all nations, and people to whom God, according to his good pleasure, sends the gospel together with the command to repent and believe. That is our strategy. When false teaching arises, our evangelism should rise to meet it. And I think John Stott is also right here, that Paul is particularly speaking in 1 Timothy against an elitism amongst the heretics of Ephesus and Scott says this in our day there are other versions of the monopoly spirit of which we need to repent for example racism nationalism tribalism classism and parochialism together with the pride and prejudice which are the cause of these narrow horizons. Timothy is to reject all such attempts to restrict the gospel, not because God saves everybody in the end, but because no type of person is excluded from salvation because of their colour, class or country. And that should be reflected in our congregations and especially In our congregational prayers. And yet too often the intercessions at church are very narrow and parochial, aren't they? And so we become narrow and parochial. And inward looking in the rest of our theology and practice. Brothers and sisters, it should not be so. In all the wrangling over the word all... We miss the point of this passage if our reading of it only leads to arguments and disputes instead of prayers. After all, we're we're about to remember the Lord's Supper. Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. All are welcome at the foot of the cross all who repent and believe are welcome at the table of the lord let's pray a prayer adapted from the 1552 book of common prayer almighty and ever living god which by thy holy apostle has taught us to make prayers and supplications and to give thanks for all people. We humbly beseech you, most mercifully, to accept our alms and to receive these, our prayers, that we offer to your divine majesty. We beseech you also to save and defend all Christian kings, princes and governors. Defend your servant, Charles, our king, and Rishi, his prime minister, that under them we may be godly and quietly governed. Amen, Amen. And the collects for Good Friday. an appropriate one. Merciful God, your desire is not for the death of sinners, but rather that they might turn from their wickedness and live. Have mercy upon all those who deny revile or malign your name take from them all ignorance hardness of heart and contempt of your word and so bring them home to your fold that we may all be one flock under one shepherd jesus christ our lord amen Amen.